Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we conclude our series, Empowered Living, Volume 2, with a message called Responding to the Spirit. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Francis Thompson was born December 18, 1859, in Lancashire, England. He was the son of a medical doctor, and he was trained to succeed. But Francis Thompson failed his medical exams three times. At the age of 25, he began to drift through life on the streets of London. He sank to the lowest depths of poverty and, in order to make a living, sold matches, hailed cabs for wealthy people, and did whatever else he could. He became hooked on drugs and used drugs to the point that he hardly ever ate. At the point of near starvation, Francis Thompson was rescued by a prostitute who took him to her room and cared for him. And it was there in a room of a prostitute that he began to write poetry on old pieces of blue wrapping paper. The editor of a London newspaper to whom Thompson had sent some outstanding poetry found him in the home of the prostitute. He had not one shirt, shabby old coat, an old pair of worn pants, and an old pair of shoes. The newspaper editor convinced him to give up drugs and come off the street. And eventually Thompson found his way into a Franciscan monastery. And there, finally, after a long journey of struggling against God, Francis Thompson surrendered his life into the hands of Jesus. And it was there at the monastery that Thompson wrote a poem about his life and his relationship to the Holy Spirit. That poem has become famous. It's called The Hound of Heaven. Thompson wanted to chronicle how the Holy Spirit stalked him and chased him until he eventually cornered him and there defeated him. Here's a part of his poem, The Hound of Heaven. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind, and I hid from him both in the midst of tears and under running laughter. Up vistaed hopes I sped and shot precipitated down titanic glooms of chasm fears. From those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, and past those noised feet, a voice comes yet more fleet. Lo, not contents thee who contentest not me. Naked I wait thy love's uplifted stroke. My harness piece by piece thou hast hewn from me and smitten me to my knee. I am defenseless utterly. <laughs> that was Francis Thompson's description of his conversion to Christ. He'd been a hunted man. The Holy Spirit was like a bloodhound baying in the distance as he heard him come And Francis had run, but there was no escape. He was defenseless before the sword of the Holy Spirit. And that's not only Thompson's story. It's your story as well if you know Jesus. That's what Paul meant when he wrote Ephesians 1, 11 to 13, when he spoke of obtaining our inheritance, having been predestined, he said. And then he adds, and sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. The average Christian has a theological black hole in his or her understanding of the Holy Spirit. That's sad. You see, the Holy Spirit has not only hunted us down for our conversion, he continues to be active in our lives today. And from the book of Ephesians, we've already seen in chapter 1, verse 17, that he's called the spirit of wisdom in Revelation. 
These are two items that he's given us out of his character. We're told in chapter 2, verse 22, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We're told in chapter 3, verse 16, that the Holy Spirit gives us strength and power in our inner being. Ephesians 4, 3 reminds us that the Spirit brings unity into the church. We love each other because the Spirit causes such love to flow. And now in Ephesians 4, verse 30, we're warned not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And from that verse, we learn at least three things. We learn that the Holy Spirit is a real person. He's not just a power or an energy source. It's inappropriate to refer to the Spirit as it. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and he is personal, just like the Father and the Son. And like a real person, the Holy Spirit can experience pain and sorrow and personal distress. We learn that the Holy Spirit is deeply involved in our lives. We have a relationship with him. He lives in us. He points us to Christ. We become aware of his wants or his dislikes, what brings him sorrow or what his desire is for our lives. And three, we learn that we as Christians never want to disappoint him. And given that this is the case, we become motivated to know what he wants. Ephesians 4, 25 to 32 gives us a description of five things the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish in our lives. This passage actually is a continuation of what's gone before. Paul has been telling us that when anyone comes to Christ, everything is made new. We're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We are brought from death to life. And because that's the case, each one of us who are Christians must take care to live a new lifestyle to reject the lifestyle of our culture and become radically countercultural. In order to express this better, Paul uses an image, that of a divine wardrobe. The old self is compared to wearing old filthy clothing. The new self is compared to wearing the holy and righteous clothing given by Jesus. Put off the old and put on the new, says Paul. Now in the passage at hand, we get specific. Paul lists five changes each of us needs to make. When we examine these five things, we find that each of these commands come with a justification. In other words, we receive a command and then Paul tells us why we should keep that command. At the very center of this passage, Paul gives the ultimate justification. We should not grieve the Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we will never wear the divine wardrobe. We'll never realize how valuable the clothing of Christ is. We'll also never realize that God is trying to accomplish something in our lives. So what is it that the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish in our lives? Five things. First, we must commit ourselves to truthfulness. So let's read Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Truthfulness is, in fact, a stretch for many of us. Whether we like it or not, We live in a society that's built on lies. It was John MacArthur who once said, our society today is so dependent on lying that if it suddenly turned to telling the truth, our way of life would collapse. If world leaders began speaking only the truth, World War III, he says, would certainly ensue. So many lies are piled on other lies, and so many organizations, businesses, economies, social orders, governments, and treaties are built on those lies that the world system would disintegrate if lying suddenly ceased. Resentment and animosity would know no bounds, and the confusion would be unimaginable, end quote. (laughs) Well, that's quite a thought. How much diplomacy, how much business, 
How much human interaction depends on what? Deception. We become the people of the lie. I wonder how comfortable we have become with lying. We start when we're young. Our teacher says, Johnny, why haven't you done your homework? And we answer, I did it. I lost it. We were lying. Then our parents asked us if it was us who had broke the window in the house, and we said, no. And as we grew, we learned we could tell a story fairly well if we made up some elements in it, like telling how we won every argument we ever had and ended the story by saying, boy, I sure showed her. You know, it didn't seem so hard after that to lie on the tax form, did it? Then we tell our boss that we're sick and we can't come in. Again, we were lying. I recently heard a discussion that a very large number of all resumes actually contained lies. And after a while, the lies become so convenient. We lie to our spouse. We lie to our boss. We lie to the government. We lie to our friends and our employees and to our church. And we tell ourselves there's a good reason for all of it. And our conscience never raises up the slightest bit in protest. But why should we tell the truth? We must, we must, because lying destroys Christian community. We are members of one another, says verse 25. And in a human body, the head never lies to the hands. So also with the body of Christ, when we lie to each other, that is, when Christian people lie to each other, we create a community where we don't trust each other. And when that happens, we also stop loving each other. And when that happens, we tear each other apart. I wonder how much unity we could build in the body of Christ if we all told the truth. One of the hardest things to do is to commit ourselves to telling the truth even when it hurts. Let me ask you this. Are you telling lies to anyone? Listen, the Holy Spirit wants you to tell the truth in all things. And that is what the divine wardrobe looks like. We have to get used to telling the truth even when telling the truth humbles us and makes us look not as good as we want. But that makes the Christian community the most unique community on earth. Hi, Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. I'm grateful to express our gratitude for those who supported the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada with a financial gift during our fiscal year-end match campaign. Last month, we reached out across the country to ask for your help to sustain the Bible teaching and engagement ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. We're excited to share that we reached our match campaign goal of $75,000 in June, resulting in $150,000 being contributed to our fiscal year end. The campaign was such a success that now an additional $50,000 has been pledged to continue our match campaign through July. So for the month of July, we share with you the opportunity to participate in an additional $50,000 for dollar match campaign. Every dollar you give will be doubled. Thank you for your generosity and commitment. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let's look at the second prompting of the Spirit. We must keep our anger in check. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This has been a puzzle for many Bible students. You know, at the outset, it seems as if Paul is telling us to be angry. 
And some have interpreted this as a command to get angry about sin. And others take this as a passage to simply mean that Paul assumes that we all get angry at times. It's just a given. But I think we should take it straight up. Be angry. Not all anger is sin. Jesus was angry when he entered the temple and drove the money changers out. See, some anger is righteous. Some anger is justified. Sometimes we should be angry. Angry about murder, about poverty, about the lack of love for God. But here's the problem. I've never met someone who's angry who will argue that his or her anger isn't justified. I mean, show me an angry person and I'll show you a person who says they have every right in the world to be angry. So Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And the point is, if you're angry at someone today and if you've been angry with them for some time, you're out of line. As a follower of Christ, your job is to forgive your enemies and not harbor bitterness against them. You might be angry with sin for a long time, but if you're angry with a person, let me say it again, you're out of line. But someone will say, well, let me tell you what that person did. Aha, but you've misunderstood me. I didn't say that person was not out of line. They may have been quite out of line, but anger that festers destroys. We become bitter. Unresolved quarrels give Satan a chance to exert influence in our lives. Essentially, this passage means that Satan will take advantage of us. You see, unresolved anger feeds into self-pity, self-righteousness and vengeance, narcissism, unforgiveness. You'll stop listening to the Holy Spirit. You'll start listening to other voices. If you let the sun go down on your anger, Satan has the inside track. He can and will exploit that. Before long, you'll have taken off the divine wardrobe and worn the clothing stained by sin. Unlike Jesus, you won't be able to pray for your enemies. So Paul says, wear the divine wardrobe. Respond to the Spirit. First, commit to truth. Two, keep your anger in check. Third, commit yourself to a lifetime of working. It's found in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Some of you listening to my voice might be thieves. If you are, you're breaking God's law. But the majority of those who are hearing me don't break into houses and You don't shoplift and you aren't planning to rob a bank. But all manner of Christians steal while justifying themselves. They might pad their expense account at work, and that is stealing. And they might not shoplift from a strange store, but they might take things home from work. That is stealing. You might not make an accurate report on your income tax form. That's lying and stealing. You know, I once heard a joke of a lawyer who was about to be sentenced to prison for unethical conduct. And the district attorney made a deal with him that he spent one year in prison for every year he practiced law. And since the lawyer was still fairly young and he'd only practiced law for two years, he agreed. But later on, the judge in the case sentenced him to 25 years in prison. Well, the lawyer was outraged. He had been promised that he would only spend one year in prison for every year that he practiced law. And how did it come to 25 years? And the judge responded, well, we simply added up your billing hours. (laughs) And if you're a lawyer, please forgive me. I think there have been far too many cruel jokes about your honorable profession. But the point I make, there are many kinds of theft. The point of this passage is that each of us should be content to say that the way in which God has intended for us to work and care for our needs is by our work. And why? Because God wants us to be givers, not just takers. That's what Paul meant when he says we might have something to share with others. The divine wardrobe is a wardrobe that gives. The Holy Spirit is prompting every one of us to ask what we might give, not what we might get. So we must be truthful. 
We must keep our anger in check. We must work. We must be givers, not just takers. And fourth, we must communicate things that build, not things that destroy. Verse 29 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The word here for corrupting talk literally means rotten, as in rotten fruit or rotten fish. Here it refers to a conversation that runs other people down or that delights in their failures. Let's be honest. We've all been there. You and I have watched at how badly someone is doing, and we belittle them. A young adult may see someone who is in a bad relationship with his or her boyfriend or girlfriend. We can't wait to talk to someone about it. We talk about other people's kids, about how they're doing at their work, about their bad habits, about their insecurities. Can we all admit that some of our speech is just rotten? Maybe it's time to get honest with God about this. Do you see what the Holy Spirit wants? He wants only words that come out of our mouths that are words that benefit the other. Words that build, build faith, build hope, build love. Why? Because rotten speech breaks the Holy Spirit's heart. I want you to notice the reasoning in verse 30. First, we're told that rotten speech grieves the Holy Spirit. And then, adding for emphasis, Paul adds, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And the point is that the Holy Spirit has placed his mark of identification on our hearts. It's his personal mark. It's his stamp of divine approval. It's like buying a new car. You know, maybe it has a three-pointed star. Genuine Mercedes-Benz. It's the same way with us. Look, let's remember that this mark of genuineness comes from the Holy Spirit, and he's the Holy Spirit. And when we speak in a way that's rotten, we deny our calling, we deny the mark, and the Holy Spirit weeps. He's heartbroken. Some of us need to be heartbroken as well. We need to hear ourselves speak. The Holy Spirit has been prompting us. He's been pleading with us to speak only those things that build, but we've torn down. We need to take off the old, filthy clothing of rotten speech. We need to start telling the truth. We need to keep our anger in check. We need to commit ourselves to being givers and not just takers. And finally, fifth, we must become the people of grace. Verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You know, this starts with a list of vices. Many of the negative features of our passage, again, have things to do with our mouths. I want you to notice the word clamor. It refers to the person who's always yelling yelling at their kids and yelling at their wife, yelling at their husband, yelling at the dog, yelling at the neighbor across the fence, and yelling at the guy who cut them off in traffic. Some people just can't get through life without visibly showing their outbursts of anger. And the next two words are slander and malice. You know, most slanderers don't recognize that they are slanderers. Let me ask this of you. How much of your talk is directed towards highlighting someone's supposed, supposed shortcomings. In contrast, how much of it is building someone else up? In contrast to this person is the person who's kind, compassionate, forgiving. That's the picture of grace. That's what the Holy Spirit wants. 
And why does he want that? Because grace is what we have received from God. See, the last part of verse 32 says, as in Christ, God forgave you. Jesus told a parable about that, about a man who was forgiven much, but was unwilling to forgive someone who was only in debt a little. Might I ask you to remember what Christ has done for you? You had enough sin in you that should eternally condemn you, but Christ forgave you. And the point is clear. We must extend to others the same grace that God has extended to us. Do you know what our greatest problem is? We discount our debt before God, and we elevate the debt that others owe us. I'm sure that none of us can extend grace to others until we deeply immerse ourselves in the love and mercy and the grace we have received from God when he forgave us the enormity of our sins. Think about it. Be amazed. If you and I become truly immersed in what terrible sinners we are, if you and I become truly immersed in what a great Savior that Christ is, then and only then will we be kind and compassionate and forgiving of each other. Show me someone who's aware that they have been forgiven much, and I'll show you someone who knows how to love much. Thanks, John. It was a fantastic series. Look forward to volume three, but let me ask you this. Recently, I was listening to a message from a pastor that suggested we have a lot of work to do in forgiving each other as the church gathers back together again, because the closure of the church has caused such great disagreement and hurtful words between believers. What does that say about the tongue? <laughs> well, I guess it says that, you know, the, the tongue is still a restless world of evil, as James, I think, said it to us. Um, we need to come to terms with the fact that, yeah, I, you know, over this time of the, of the pandemic, we have indeed um, perhaps, um, you know, divided in ways that we should never have divided. So it is true that we need to come back together again and we need to uh, listen to one another, love one another, uh, be at work in the lives of one another, uh, stop being suspicious of each other, but look to build up each other in love. Uh, so these kind of things are required. I, I want to add also, Ben, that as the pandemic ends now, we need to get back to church. Just do it. Get there. Be among God's people. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Deuteronomy 11.19 reminds us that we're to commit ourselves wholeheartedly to the words of Scripture, to ensure the Bible is being taught to our children and being talked about wherever we are and at every time of day. The 11.19 Fellowship, our monthly partner program, has become an essential contributor to making all the ministries and resources of Back to the Bible Canada possible. Now over 700 strong, the 1119 Fellowship represents donors from across the country committed to the mission and ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again and in doubt. One 1119 member wrote us to say, I know that I can trust what is taught by Dr. Newfeld. This is why we became monthly supporters. To become a part of our monthly partner program, the 1119 Fellowship, or to learn more about the benefits of joining, Visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. Thank you for supporting Bible teaching you can trust.